Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. At CPA, do you have a phone number for the RP? Maybe you're still landline and what location where our victim's at? Uh, phone number is... Name's... I'm not sure that. But the female who got hit, they both, the male and the female, both got into the van and headed north. Continuing attempt to locate, time lapse of about probably 40 seconds. RP states seen a male hit a female domestic. He got into a white Ford Transit van, has a black ladder on the back, Florida plate of the van turned right onto Main Street from Moonflower Market and headed north onto Main Street, 1638. Hey, lovely listeners. Welcome back to Crime Analyst and the Intelligence Cell. Now, before I dive into this episode, I want to give the usual trigger warning. I know it's really distressing and hard to listen to Gabby throughout the police stop, but I want you to hear what happened firsthand, as well as my thoughts and analysis. Listener discretion is advised. Okay, that having been said, you'll recall part five ended with me saying that Officer Pratt told Officer Robbins that he had just got off the phone with one of the eyewitnesses and he'd recorded the conversation. He was going to tell Officer Robbins about what he had learned from the eyewitness. Now, before I get into that, the clip that you heard at the top of the episode was a dispatcher relaying to Utah police that they had received a call telling them about a man striking a woman and that that man took off in a white Ford Transit van with Florida plates. Well, just minutes later, Officer Robbins pulled them over. So the dispatcher said the following... The RP, which means the reporting party, the RP states seeing a male hit a female. It's a domestic, around 4.38pm Mountain Time. He then got into a white Ford Transit van, which has a black ladder on the back and a Florida plate. OK, so that's an important context to know about, because there was some confusion about whether Officer Robbins, who stopped the van, was aware of the history and the eyewitnesses. Now, according to this dispatcher, Officer Robbins was. So that may well account for why he asked Gabby to step out of the van. However, it's concerning to me that he said that Brian wasn't in any trouble before interviewing him if he had been told that a witness saw him hit Gabby. 
Okay, so now turning our attention to what Officer Pratt relays to Officer Robbins about the male eyewitness, take a listen to this. So Officer Pratt said that one male witness said he never saw the male actually strike the female and that the male tried to lock the female out of the vehicle. He said the female wanted to get in and she eventually clawed her way through the driver's door. The witness said he didn't understand why she did that. Officer Pratt then says that he thought it was the only door that wasn't locked that she could get through. He continues by saying that Brian was trying to disengage with Gabby, and I quote, I guess he hung her backpack on the back so she could have her shit so that he didn't have to engage with her. Okay, that's quite a lot to unpack, so I'm going to pause momentarily. I'm going to deconstruct this. Firstly, Officer Pratt says Gabby was, and I quote, trying to claw her way into the van. Now, the word claw is really important. Claw her way into the van denotes desperation. It's most likely the witness's choice of word, and Officer Pratt is merely repeating it. Why is Gabby desperately clawing her way into her van? Now, Officer Pratt superimposes his view as to why she did that. He guessed it's the only door that she could get in, but he gives no thought to why she desperately wanted to get into her van, and more importantly, why was Brian controlling Gabby's movement and her actions? Her space for action. For some reason, he seems to think that that's perfectly normal behaviour and that it's acceptable for Brian to do this. But for me, it's a red flag. Instead, Officer Pratt says, Brian was trying to disengage with Gabby. Okay, so the word disengage is really important. Apparently, Brian locking Gabby out of her own van is seen as disengagement. This is absolutely not an act of disengagement, in my opinion, in this context. And then he said, and I quote, I guess he hung her backpack on the back so she could have her shit so that he didn't have to engage with her. So Brian hangs her backpack out of the van, which further underlines to me that this is about control and limiting her space for action. Now, in my opinion, we're actually getting somewhere. The fact that Gabby's so desperate to get back into her van, well, it's most likely that Brian's probably saying that he's going to leave her. That would account for her desperation. However, Officer Pratt never questions this. He never questioned or challenged this narrative. He just accepted the narrative without considering Gabby's behaviour to be a reactive response to Brian taking control of her van and putting her bag outside the van. I don't think it's a stretch to imagine that 22-year-old Gabby might be fearful if Brian was threatening to leave her. 
And that might actually happen, particularly if Brian is someone who, when he says he's going to do something, that he follows through. Did any of the officers actually put themselves in Gabby's shoes? How might that feel being left in the middle of nowhere as a young female? They didn't ask any more about this, which is vital when assessing and identifying control and risk. Also, the fact that the eyewitness saw Brian shove her, not hit her, but shove her, just as Gabby said, is important. He also said that he couldn't be sure whether it was defensive or aggressive in nature. Well, of course, it could be either. Now, on the basis of behaviour and language and the way that both Gabby and Brian are presenting, this would absolutely lead me to be asking more questions. Also, there was another witness, or reporting party, who witnessed everything as it unfolded. Now, this other witness said it appeared that the male was trying to take Gabby's phone and drive away without her. So this witness, known as Christopher, said this... They were talking aggressively at each other and something definitely seemed off. At one point, they were sort of fighting over a phone. I think the male took the female's phone. It appeared that he didn't want her in the white van. The male, believed to be laundry, got into the driver's seat, according to Christopher, and the woman, believed to be Gabby Petito, followed. It happened outside the Moonflower Cooperative, an organic grocery store in downtown Moab. The witness heard Gabby say to Brian, why do you have to be so mean? He said that at one point he saw Gabby punching him in the arm and trying to get inside the vehicle. Christopher said, from my point of view, something definitely didn't seem right. It was as if the guy was trying to leave her and maybe take her phone. So according to Christopher, who saw it all unfold, Brian was trying to control Gabby and the situation. He tried to take her phone and he threatened to leave Gabby there. So this is really important information from Christopher and it appears that it wasn't really given any weight when it should have been in my opinion as it really explains much better exactly what was going on and it confirms what I believed happened. At the very least, and I'm being generous here, more questions should have been asked of Brian. However, Officer Pratt concludes, and I quote, So at this point, unless the guy's screaming that he's going to jail and did something to this girl, it sounds like she is the primary aggressor. Take a listen to this. He said that he never saw the male strike the female. He saw the male trying to lock her out of the vehicle. She even told us that he was trying to lock her out, told her to go take a walk, so that she was trying to get in. She eventually couldn't get in and actually clawed her way in through the driver's door. He says, I don't understand why she's doing that. Well, I think it's because it was the only door that wasn't locked that she could get through. She's trying to get in over him. He's trying to disengage from her. I guess he hung her backpack on the back probably so she'd have her shit so that he didn't have to engage with her. Everything she's saying is the same thing. I haven't heard what he said, but if that's what he said, it's also what the witness is saying. The witness says, I never saw him hit her. I saw him shove her, but I couldn't tell if it was an aggression against her or a defense against her as far as her, you know, being the aggressor. So at this point, from what, unless the guy's screaming that he needs to go to jail and did something to this girl, it sounds to me like she is the primary aggressor. Yeah. I have to say, based on the totality of what's going on and hearing from Christopher, 
and what the officer was told by both witnesses, I don't believe Gabby was the primary aggressor, even though she said she hit Brian first. With domestic violence and coercive control, we have to assess the power dynamics and any potential power imbalance. In other words, due to the fact domestic abuse and coercive control is all about power and control, we must look beyond physical abuse and violence and identify control-related behaviour. Anyone working with victims and perpetrators must also consider reactionary abuse or situational abuse. That's when someone's reacting to an abuser and they're not the primary aggressor. Remember, domestic abuse and coercive control are patterned behaviours, so we must consider whether it's a pattern of behaviour or a one-off. Now, in this situation between Gabby and Brian, it has all the hallmarks of being a pattern. A pattern where Brian is the abuser. He's adept at manipulating and gaslighting. In other words, it's an established pattern of behaviour, in my opinion, with Gabby feeling like she's at fault and that she must take responsibility. Also, bear in mind that Brian didn't say that he hit or shoved Gabby, despite two eyewitnesses saying that he did. He didn't even say that he'd grabbed Gabby around the mouth, when we know that he did. He took no responsibility, in fact, at all, which is classic perpetrator behaviour. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. He also told the police officers that he told Gabby to calm down and go for a walk. That's not what the eyewitness reported. Far from it, in fact. Brian was not being truthful. That should have been a big red flag. But Brian was taken at his word despite the eyewitness accounts. Why? Was it because he was the man? To me, he certainly sounded convincing on the face of it, and of course the male officers believed him, and they overlooked other alternatives. In my opinion, they went for the low-hanging fruit, and they didn't question or challenge anything. I'll also add in that Gabby didn't lay out what happened in a coherent manner either. She was upset, she was distressed, and she was under pressure. It's exactly why victims need advocates to be their voice, because when abuse happens, it's traumatic, and you're not always your best advocate and you're most likely at this point to be the worst version of you. In the police body-worn camera footage that was released, and bear in mind that I'm talking about one bit of footage that was released, but there was a second body-worn camera footage that was released, and there was also a third which has never been released, and I'm going to talk about that in the next episode. But going back to the version that's one hour and 17 minutes long that was released first... I didn't hear Gabby saying that Brian threatened to leave her and that he had grabbed her phone and that that was why she was trying to get in the van because she was fearful that she was going to be left there because that's what he threatened to do. Neither did Gabby say that Brian was being mean to her. They were her words, according to Christopher the witness. But I don't believe that she was invited to. In fact, Officer Pratt just kept asking her about the physical abuse. That's all he wanted to know about, and that's a huge problem. 
It's one of the reasons I created The Dash, to have the right conversation with a victim and to give them permission to say what's happening. What I saw was an abundance of Gabby minimising and downplaying what Brian did to her. Instead of making it clear what he did and how he put her in fear, she took full responsibility and the blame for everything. Now, that's classic victim behaviour, unfortunately. Trying to protect the abuser, and it further highlights evidence of being gaslit. She listens to Brian's version of events, and she doesn't trust her own understanding anymore. It's exactly why we have risk models of femicide, the dash included, that focus on control-related behaviour and not just the physical. It's why we must assess the history and look for patterns of control-related behaviour and move away from a violence model. Some of the most dangerous men can control just with a single look or gesture. They're effective manipulators and they darvo victims and law enforcement just as Brian did and often they're believed just because they're men. With the dash, we assess the totality of what's happening and not just any physical abuse. In fact, more than half the questions in the dash are about coercive control. I'll lay it out plainly because for some women, just like Gabby, it really is a matter of life or death. So with a case, it's really important to assess the following. Who has the power and control? And what is the level of control? So in this scenario, is the 23-year-old man Brian, who has the keys to the vehicle, who tried to take Gabby's phone and threatened to leave her, is he in control? Or is the 22-year-old female Gabby, who's been locked out of her own van and who's been told by Brian that he'll leave her and he's hung her backpack out of the van, is she in control? Well, I think you know the answer. Brian is in control. And he's in control in the retelling of this story. His version is that he told her to take a minute and go for a walk. That's not what happened. Also, who holds the emotional power and control? Who's upset and distressed? Who's calm? Now again, with Gabby and Brian, Gabby's still upset 20 minutes into the police stop. And as it continues, she's still sobbing and trembling at the end. Now I can tell you from all the cases that I've worked... It's very unusual for an abuser to behave in this way. In fact, thinking back over my cases, I've not seen it happen, and I've assessed and analysed thousands of cases, but I've not seen it once. Also, who's monopolising attention? Who's being dominant in the narrative? I believe Brian monopolises the attention, and it's his narrative, and this is the dominant narrative, and it's unquestioned and believed with one officer even acting out his actions with Gabby and another superimposing the emotionality of his ex-wife and that Brian was even protecting Gabby. The overreach is always in favour of Brian and never in favour of Gabby, despite her being so distressed and what the eyewitness said. It's staggering when you break it down like this. And yes, of course, you must also consider physical abuse. Who holds the physical power and control? So even though we now know that Gabby says she hit Brian first, we know that Brian was preventing her from getting in the van. He took her phone, threw her backpack out of the van, and he told her he was going to leave her there. Now there's no excuse for violence, but I believe she was reacting to his controlling and abusive behaviour and trying to get her phone back and get in the van. Gabby's behaviour is reactionary. 
And Brian, rather than trying to calm the situation down and calm Gabby down, he was actually creating the situation and antagonising the situation and Gabby. So in this scenario and in the relationship, Gabby does not hold the power and control. Brian does. And let's not forget he grabbed her around the mouth as a clear act and demonstration of his power and strength to reinforce that message. So I now understand that Brian had a strategy for establishing dominance over Gabby and reinforcing his dominance. And from watching him in action, it's also apparent to me he's able to establish dominance in his conversation with law enforcement. But despite all of this, Officer Pratt summed up by saying that they have a problem as they have to arrest the primary aggressor and that Brian is the victim. Unfortunately, Officer Pratt creates a scenario based on this thinking that it's Brian that doesn't want to get Gabby into trouble and he doesn't want to say Gabby assaulted him as he doesn't want to get her into trouble. Listen to Officer Pratt and Officer Robbins. Officer Robbins is explaining the conflicting narratives and Officer Pratt offers what he thinks went on and that they must charge Gabby. The witness says, I never saw him hit her. I saw him shove her, but I couldn't tell if it was an aggression against her or a defense against her as far as her, you know, being the aggressor. So at this point, from what, unless the guy's screaming that he needs to go to jail and did something to this girl, it sounds to me like she is the primary aggressor. Yeah. Now, the problem with her being the primary aggressor is in an incidence of domestic assault, be it a male or be it a female, we shall arrest. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean they have to go to jail. We can do a citation if it meets one of three criterion, which one of them is that we can ensure that they're not going to um, further risk each other's safety. But the problem with that is they live in the same vehicle. That's what I was going to say. The and other part of it is... There was actually an injury to, to the victim, which is him. Right. And I'm getting conflicting stories about why they hit the curb up here. Oh, what, what did he say why he hit the curb? Well, I've watched... This is what I saw first. Saw him cross the double yellow. I was doing 42 miles an hour. I was, I don't know, probably two car lengths behind him. Tapping my whales at him, trying to get his attention. They knew I was behind him. And then after he crossed the double yellow, he merged over into the right lane. And then out of nowhere, just boom, and hit the curb. So did he tell you why? He said that she grabbed the wheel and turned it real hard. She said that she was hitting him in the arm. So Sounds legit. I mean, I'm sure if I'm driving and my arm's on the wheel and I'm getting hit in the arm, I'm probably pulling out the wheel. Yeah. And I'm sure it was a little of both. I'm usually the truth is somewhere between. He's probably trying not to say that he hit her because he probably doesn't want her charged with assault, domestic assault. He probably would rather say she pulled the wheel than hit hit him. Yeah. You know what I mean? So, fortunately for her, she... We, we cannot treat just because he's bigger and stronger, and even if he's not one of the best charges, we can't treat this differently than if it was a male on female violence. Yeah. And we're going to have to charge her, and um, we can do a citation if there's some arrangement that can be made to separate them. And then we have to let them know that there's no contact order in effect. Yeah. And we have to let him know the only way to drop is to go into the police department during business hours and fill out a waiver. Which, by the way, what's it's today? Too late Thursday. Today. So it won't be till tomorrow. I know, they're until noon, I think. Yeah. Which well, I'm sure he's going to want to drop it. Well, the other part of it is they said that they're on a... They've been on four or five months that they've been living out of this van together. Well, this is really bad news. Let's talk to him first. Officer Pratt is making up Brian's narrative to make it fit. Despite what Gabby told him, 
and what the witnesses said and what we know about control and coercive control. He makes it clear that Gabby can't be treated differently because she's female. I can't underline how alarming this is to hear. Every situation is unique. You cannot treat every situation as if it's the same that repeats over and over and over again, particularly when talking about risk and the safety of women and children. Also, coercive control is idiosyncratic to the victim and the abuser, so even more reason why it's dangerous to have a blanket approach. And most importantly, the femicide rate is at an all-time high. It's women being killed by men, not the other way round. This mustn't be ignored or overlooked. The police policy needs to be updated as a matter of urgency. Now, I'm even seeing statistics being repurposed to suit faux narratives. And I'll give you an example. On average, it takes a woman seven times to successfully leave a male abuser. Now, this statistic relates to women specifically due to coercive control and structured inequalities and disadvantages that keep women entrapped. Recently, I heard it quoted as, it takes people seven times to leave an abusive relationship. And you probably know what I'm going to say, don't you? Firstly, there's no such thing as an abusive relationship. The relationship is not abusive, a person is, and we must name them. Domestic abuse and coercive control are motivated by power and control, so you must look for the power imbalance. Also, the seven times refers to women leaving a male abuser. It's important to identify the level of control. It increases a woman's risk of serious and fatal injury because it undermines her autonomous capacity to resist or escape the abuser. Taking sex out of it and making it gender neutral is not only inaccurate, it's bloody dangerous. Domestic abuse is gendered. Statistically, it affects women more, and 93% of the abusers are male. And when talking about coercive control and lethality, even more so. You know, I really wish it wasn't the case that four to five women are murdered every day in America by a current or former male abuser, and that it mostly happens on separation. But it is the case. This is about women being murdered by men. That's the stat. It's not my opinion. In the UK, it's women being murdered by men. One woman every four days. And in Australia, it's one woman every week. You can't just airbrush these facts out. This isn't about being politically correct or being inclusive. The stats show men are the main perpetrators of domestic abuse, stalking and sexual violence, and that must be acknowledged. Saying domestic abuse and coercive control has no gender is the same energy as all lives matter. And if men were being murdered at the same rate by women, I would be talking about that. And no, this isn't about saying men can't be victims either. They can. But if domestic abuse and or coercive control affected women and men equally, as I keep hearing in these faux narratives, where are all the murders of men by women? Don't pile on me because I'm raising the issue of male violence to women and trying to do something about it. Put your energy into holding abusive and violent men to account. I always think if the same amount of energy went into that as it did rewriting the narrative and trying to deflect and distract by piling on me and others for trying to do something about it, we'd have this problem solved. 
I'll say it again really plainly. This is about preventing violence against women and femicide and familicide. Everyone should be invested in keeping women and children safe. And if you're not, you're part of the problem, quite frankly. So please, for the love of God, stop changing the statistics. You're doing a huge disservice to women and children. You're writing them out of their own murders. And we won't be able to prevent future murders if you distort the true picture of male violence towards women and children. Also, if you choose to do nothing and remain silent, you're colluding with the abusers and you're protecting them from accountability. And to those who say I hate men, don't be so ridiculous. The trolling I get for highlighting this as a problem is unreal. It just really underlines to me how little people know about me and my work when they say things like that. And I'm talking about all the pro bono and free work that I do, I hasten to add, as well as the really important men in my life whom I absolutely adore, including my baby boy, who I want a better world for. So get on the right side of this and start to be part of the solution. OK, back to Gabby. So Officer Pratt explains that there's no discretion in the state of Utah for charges regarding domestic assault, and I quote, it's really bad news. And even whilst Officer Robbins is talking to him, he turns to her, stating he's going to let Brian know first about his decision. What's clear to me from this exchange is that Officer Pratt is the decision maker. Noticeably, he walks right past Gabby, who's still in Officer Robbins's patrol vehicle. The door is open, and she's talking with the female National Park Service ranger, Melissa Hulls, the visitor and resource protection supervisor for the Arches National Park. Now, it appears to me that when Officer Pratt made his decision, he didn't talk with Melissa Hulls, who appears to have interacted with Gabby the most. In my opinion, that would have been the most sensible thing to do, to see if she elicited any further useful information, to aid with his decision-making. It's also instructive to me that these two white, older male officers don't seem to recognise the fact that they're older men in authority, and that might be a barrier to Gabby disclosing and that they might be making Gabby feel very uncomfortable and uneasy. In fact, it's not even on their radar. Take a listen to this. Did you ask him yet to take pictures of him? No, I haven't done any of that yet. Ryan, unfortunately, in the state of Utah, we don't have discretion on some things. Like, for example, if I pull you up for speeding and I want to give you a warning, I can do that because it's under Class A. It's a class B or under. If I want to give you warnings for all kinds of stuff, I can't. But there's a few things I can't. When I say I, please, I'm not in charge of One of the things that the state legislature doesn't give us discretion on is charges when it comes to a domestic assault. And it sounds like you guys are living together, so you, you meet the statute for domestic partners. And you do have injury. And both an independent witness, probably the next one we're going to talk to as well, which we haven't talked to yet, but one, the one we did talk to, and your own companion, have made it clear that she primary aggressor, and that she was striking you and you just received injuries. You haven't admitted to striking her, she has not admitted to striking her, the witness did not see you strike her. So at this point, you're the victim of the domestic assault, and even if, you, even if you didn't want to pursue this, we don't have a choice. The best thing we can do... Did you hear that at the end? Brian actually laughs when Officer Pratt says, you are a victim of domestic assault. He literally can't believe it and his face looks quizzical the whole way through Officer Pratt's monologue. He keeps looking in Officer Robbins's direction and really can't believe it. 
Across my career, I've not seen a victim laugh when they're told that they're the victim of a domestic assault by their partner. This is another red flag moment for me, which really leads me to believe that he's not the primary victim. There is literally nothing funny about this situation or about Gabby's distress. Now, he says that he can give Brian a warning for speeding, but there's no discretion for domestic assault. I'm still reeling from Brian's response, and I've seen this many, many times. The fact that he laughs, it really is a standout moment and red flag, and Officer Pratt doesn't even acknowledge it. He just explains that he has to put Gabby in jail if he can't separate them. Brian's still grinning away at this point, and he laughs again. Listen to this. The best thing we can do to not... The loss that we have to charge with doesn't say we have to put her in jail. Okay? But it also says we have to separate her in our contact order. And we have to put her in jail if we cannot separate And there's a little problem here. You guys want to afford to live in the bed together. How are we supposed to separate her there? Now, I don't want to take this small 20-minute shit. You could definitely defend yourself against, but at the same time, we can't say because you're a male and she's a female, we can't treat this differently than if you were the male hitting her. Or we got to treat the same. So she's kind of in a tough spot. So unless you have an idea about how she could not go to jail and be separated, you have empty town, somewhere she could stay. Tomorrow, if you want to, it's up to you. You can, can go, I go to jail. You can't because you don't have a charge for you. Now, tomorrow, if you wanted to be with her again tomorrow, take your break. If you want to be with her again tomorrow, because it's after five, so office closed, you can go to the police department and fill out a waiver to drop the no contact order so you guys can still be together. But she's going to have a court date online. She's going to have to show up for a court date online and answer. The prosecutor might drop it. She might say, you, if you, for example, if you're not willing to pursue it, that's your decision. so now Officer Pratt admits that he doesn't have to put Gabby in jail. And he says this small 22-year-old, blonde hair and blue-eyed young girl. Yup, he says it himself. Even the way that he describes her, he knows fully well that she's clearly no risk to Brian whatsoever. And there's Brian, grinning and laughing. And that actually is the point about taking positive action. It's about ensuring that you don't leave a victim at risk. And Gabby really presents no risk. They look and sound ridiculous at this point. For me, it shows exactly why discretion is needed and defensible decision-making. But Officer Pratt sounds like he's just reading out of a textbook. Brian says, Can I go to jail for her? And he's grinning inanely. One of the officers says, But you haven't done anything wrong. Brian then laughs and says, I'll steal your radio. Sorry. And they're all joking and laughing, all pally. I find it so uncomfortable to watch. Brian continues, I'm her fiancé. I love her. It was, it was a squabble. I'm sorry it got so public. I want it to go away. How do I get rid of it? Now the officers talk through how to deal with it and land on saying, how about Gabby goes to a hotel? But Brian says that's not possible and they don't know anyone in town. 
Brian says he's trying to figure out what to do. And can Gabby drive off in the van? And they say that they can give him a lift into town. Take a listen to this. Does that all make sense? No, I'm getting it. It's a lot. I really quickly. No, no, I'm getting it. I'm just trying to figure out a way. You don't know anyone in town? You guys figure out well? No, I don't know anyone in town. If you went. I don't think CTM will take you to see the aggressor. No. There's a wind shelter. I'm curious. You can find out. Say, hey, so wait, 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 if you did the citation, she, like, say she drove off in a, she could drive off in this car. We could give you a ride somewhere. So I got my backpack. So it's for you. I got my backpack. You can spend the night. You want to drive me to Delicate Art? Does she have a good driver's license? Is she going to get you this driver's license? Yeah. So yeah. she would do vehicle. Yeah, she can help. Well, then you're trying to be homeless for the night. And I mean, I can't talk to her at all. Well, and I've got to do the, the thing so I can't go camping. You can tell her what it is that she needs to do to get, to get through all this and then let her know what your plan is. Here, here's the problem, though. If we take you up to Delicate Arch, you're going to be hoofing it from Delicate Arch all the way down to Moab Center Street so that you can yeah. fill out that paperwork. Because if you're not there by noon tomorrow, you're going to be looking at Monday morning. You'd be looking at Monday morning before you could actually see her again. There's a few things here that are interesting to me. Firstly, this really isn't hard, and yet it's made out to be so complex. It's amazing how tough it is, and yet most male perpetrators are never held to account. But when it's a female, it seems to be a different set of rules and action. That's what I see across my career. Also, Brian appears to be only interested in going to the delicate arch. What an odd thing to say when they've just talked about Gabby getting a criminal conviction. Again, it's another red flag. And he's still laughing and joking whilst he's standing with the officers and whilst Gabby is on her own, not knowing what's going on. But the fact that he says he wants to go hiking at the Delicate Arch at this point now reinforces my belief that the argument started that day because Brian wanted to go hiking and Gabby wanted to spend some time sorting out the website and doing her thing. When he couldn't bring her to heel, he got angry and annoyed, and then he tried to control her by grabbing her phone, locking her out of the van, and threatening to leave her there. That's what I believe happened on the day. Also, when asked whether Gabby had a good driver's licence by Officer Pratt, it's fascinating to me that Brian thinks for a moment, and then he responds by saying yes. Officer Pratt then asks, Do you trust her with your vehicle? And Brian says, uh, yes, she can handle it. Wow, he doesn't immediately say yes, and it's her van, by the way. No, he takes his time, he thinks about it, and then he says flippantly, yeah, she can handle it. Oh, right then, she can handle her own van. Again, playing into sexism and the power dynamic, it's so revealing if you know what you're looking for. Okay, I'm going to wrap here. I know that this is a lot to take in, and it's not an easy listen. It's also obvious when it's broken down in micro-detail, isn't it? You can see now that my work takes a lot of time to do, but what I will say is that it's well worth it, and Gabby deserves it. Once you see and hear what coercive control looks like, I hope that you won't unsee it. My hope is that you cannot not see it again in future. Although, just bear in mind, it may present differently, because each case is unique, as it's idiosyncratic, 
and the behaviour is tailor-made to each victim. I also wanted to end by letting you know that my work on coercive control and coercive control law reform, as well as crime analyst, was featured in The Hollywood Reporter on the 20th of June. I'm grateful to The Hollywood Reporter and Beatrice Verhoeven for having the conversation with me and mainstreaming my work on coercive control and law reform and why it's needed. And I'm really grateful to Sama from the Netflix show Bad Vegan and Penilla from the Tinder Swindler who also spoke out. I've covered both cases on Crime Analyst, so please take a listen to my two cents on those cases. And the link to the article is in the show notes, so be sure to check that out too. So I hope you'll join me back in the intelligence cell next week as I continue to deconstruct this really distressing and concerning case, the murder of Gabby Petito. Until then, be curious, ask questions, and always trust your instinct. Here's my final two cents before the episode wraps. If you like what I do, please take two minutes to leave a five-star review wherever you listen to Crime Analyst or on the website www.crime-analyst.com. It really helps others find me and also helps with the ratings. Crime Analyst is written, produced and hosted by me, Laura Richards. Sound engineering by Jason Sheasley at Abridged Audio. Cover art and graphics by Chris Rowbottom at Syndicate and music by Kilrood. Buenos dias, world, from the San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance. I'm Marco Wint. And I'm Rick Schwartz. And we're your hosts for Season 3 of Amazing Wildlife, a show from iHeartRadio Ruby Studio and the global conservation organization behind the San Diego Zoo and the San Diego Zoo Safari Park. Listen as we dive into the efforts here in San Diego and spotlight the heroes working worldwide to care for the species you know and love. Listen to Amazing Wildlife on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.